I'm Jim Juno, and this is Lights, Camera, Author. At age 23, Naomi Hart flew from Australia to New York to make it on Broadway as a musical theater actor. In the process, she accidentally ended up working for the New York Mafia, performed as a dancing plate in the musical Beauty and the Beast, married a chef, opened the famous Hart's Yard restaurant in Sydney, Australia, lived on a tropical island in Fiji, and after discovering her daughter had autism and her husband had ADHD, lost all her hair to stress and embraced water polo. Naomi Hart's new book, Life at the Bottom of the Blender, outlines her roller coaster life that has not only seen her cheered by U.S. audiences, spat on by rude restaurant customers, and lived in buildings where dead bodies were discovered, but also encountered a whole cast of incredible people from New York to L.A., Fiji to Yumina Beach, all dedicated to pursuing their dreams and making the most out of life. I talked with Naomi Hart about life at the bottom of the blender. We're talking with Naomi Hart, who has a new book out, actually it comes out on August 1st. It's called Life at the Bottom of the Blender. And it's your life story, isn't it, Naomi? It is. Well, 20 years of it. It starts the day I moved to New York when I was 23 and finishes the day that we moved to Umina, which is a, a little coastal town about 90 minutes north of Sydney. Fantastic. Yeah, I was reading a little bit of your book from on the online sample that they have uh, up on Amazon. And you arrived in New York probably before the what they call the New York Renaissance, wasn't it? The place that you stayed at, uh, it wasn't all that hot, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not. But, you know, when you've got stars in your eyes and you're a poor student, you'll put up with anything. But it was pretty dreadful. I think I think coming, I lived on the sixth floor and walking past the fifth floor and seeing it um, taped off with the the tape that I'd only ever seen in in a in an American you know cop show um, because someone had died on that floor and no one had noticed that might have made me made me think see through things and then I remember one time I uh, I'd moved to another place worse if possible. And my dad had come to visit me because he was doing some work um, with a charity and he went home and then my mum came separately later on and she was appalled that my dad had let me live in this absolute squalor with rats running around out the front of it. But, you know, keep cooking at the end of my bed to put it in the microwave, which was the only thing I had and, you know, living on um, tins of tuna and cereal. But, I mean, look, most most Dang. uni kids are, are doing things on a budget and and when I moved to New York it was 52 cents to um the American dollar wow so I really had to be uh even more careful than 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 you normally would have to be yeah I remember I remember in your book you said like you said that you uh that there were dead people there and nobody noticed them which I'm really I mean I went to Los Angeles once and I thought maybe there were some people laying on the ground, but they turned out to be homeless, you know, but um, uh, that's, I mean, what, that was your first impression of, of the USA, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, look, I think the thing with New York is it, it could be incredibly lonely and, and obviously for some people it, it certainly is. And, and where the housing was in some situations, um, you know how New York has that law that you can't move people on. So there were some people who were who were living, you know, not not with the greatest of mental health and not with the 
greatest access to services. So mm-hmm. I can see how people slip through the cracks. But my New York experience was of community and of a shared feeling of joie de vivre and that we were really lucky to be there and that, you know, everything was in front of us and we didn't know that that everything was going to be tougher than we'd ever imagined. But but I lived in New York poor, but none of that mattered. I, you know, I volunteered at the yoga studio and I got free yoga classes and my friends volunteered at the dance studio and that's how they got free dance classes and you know we used to go to the pub and we would eat the beer nuts which probably since COVID are never going to be provided ever again but you know um a pitcher of beer and that'll keep a uni student going and and I didn't know anyone with money so it didn't occur to me you could be experiencing New York in any other way and it wasn't until four or five or four years in I think that I got a job uh, working on the east side at a restaurant that I started to see how the other half lived. Wow. That's like, you know, and, and when you did, I'm still uh, in your at the beginning of your book where you went to uh, Central Park and well, you saw the Dakota, uh, you, you, you walked everywhere. Uh, I want to make sure people know that you, that you saved $72 a month in your book (laughs) it did i did i wonder what i was thinking i was like you know that was 2002 so i wonder what the monthly um subway pass is now but yes i saved 72 dollars a month and i walked everywhere and at first my new york friends or my american friends thought i was crazy and to be honest none of them stuck with me on the walking particularly in the in the winter um but um i for me as well it's such a way to see people uh, and so I, I felt like I was living in that city all the time. I mean, I would some, I would catch the subway home late at night if I finished work late at night, but, um, you know, New York, there's always something going on. And so oh, yeah. I never didn't feel safe and I never, there were never no lights on. And, um, it also, I think probably I used it as a bit of thinking time and a bit of me time. And sometimes I love to run. And so sometimes I would finish my day and I'd run home because, um, that was uh, that, you know, running has always been a great release for me. And so I would take advantage of, you know, running this straight line up Manhattan and, um, you know, not getting lost, which is very easy for me to do. And, uh, oh gosh. I mean, I remember walking through snowstorms and walking through rain and, you know, I only did one summer in New York cause I was normally out performing, but, you know, walking through the humidity and, and everything was so hot that the, you could smell the dog wee evaporating from the pavements and, um, I think walking is wonderful because I think it gives you an, a, a 360 degree of the city that you're visiting. That's right. I mean, everything is right in front of you. And like we, like you say in your book, you went to Central Park and saw the Dakota. And I saw your reaction when I first mentioned that. So there's got to be some good memories there. Well, so that was, we were in um, first semester and, uh, and our acting teacher had given us a scene uh, from a play about the death of John Lennon. And 
he had casually said, I mean, we were five seconds into New York and still trying to work out which way was, you know, uptown. And he had casually said, you know, um, it's not far from here. So, of course, you know, my friends and I, and it was, I think it was a Friday night and we'd, we used to celebrate on Friday. We'd go to the pub and get out, you know, beer nuts and pitcher of beer. I didn't actually drink beer. I usually went with some horrible $2 glass of wine. And, um, and then we went to the Dakota, which is, is it what's 80th and Central Park West? Or oh, it's like right around, <laughs> right around, sort of right around the 80s, I think. I can't remember. And we were standing there looking up at it. And you could, ima- we were imagining what had happened in the, in, in the, you know, when that horrible thing had gone down. And out of the darkness, you know, one of us hypothesized that we wondered if if Yoko could see us from the window. And um, out of the darkness, this voice said, well, she could if she kept her window open, but it's always down except for the one month in October when she remembers his death and um, has a has a candle in the window. Now, hang on, that might be November. I'd have to check that. It, but it either way. December 8th is when he. When he oh, beg your pardon. Beg your That's pardon. Okay. So either way, Frank, the homeless man who was sitting on a park bench right by where we were, started talking to us about uh, how she would do that every month and people would come and see the, the, the candle in the, in the window. And then he also told us that he had made friends with Roberta Flack and that she was going to buy him an apartment and get him off the streets, which... <laughs> I thought Steve was fantastic. And so we just were, we couldn't believe that this was happening to us. And we were, we felt like we were just having this incredible New York experience. So then, of course, we ran across the road to the Dakota building and um, started talking to the security guard who was dressed, if I recall, in like an olive green jacket and he couldn't have been kinder and he, I mean, really, he completely indulged our acting sort of fantasies and told us even more about the building and pointed out where it had happened and then told us that around the corner was a little Italian joint that John and Yoko used to go to all the time uh and so of course we went and by that point it was quite late in the night and I think we got cannolis and coffee and um sat in the back corner and there were all these photos of the two of them in this in this um little Italian restaurant and it just I just remember emailing home and I don't think, you know, I couldn't, I, you couldn't, you could feel my excitement through, through the email. And I just thought, I can't believe how lucky I am. See, that's, that's the amazing thing is that, and for everybody listening, um, I neglected to let people know where we're, where, where we are talking from. We're using the glory of the internet. You're in Sydney, Australia, Correct. Well, actually, I'm in our new home, which is the result of COVID, um, about 90 minutes north of Sydney on a, in a place called the Central Coast. And we live in a town called Jumina, which is right on the beach. And it's um, a beautiful little town full of lots of old people. <laughs> <laughs> so when I watch it now, if they're 62 or, or younger, or 62, or, <laughs> I'm, that's what I am, okay? So, <laughs> no, no, way older than you. Oh, okay, good, because I'll be there someday. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but we're halfway around the world being able to talk mm-hmm. to each other like this, which is really amazing, you know. Uh, and, um, but you, you know, you got your start, you got yourself situated in New York. You actually got started getting jobs in the theater 
I did. I did. So I, I graduated and I was desperate to get a job. I had left a boyfriend back in, in Australia and I had promised that I was only going for six months. And I think I'd already been there for, I don't know, two years or something by this point. <laughs> no, no, probably maybe a year and a bit. Anyway, longer than I'd said. And I, my parents had kept me alive with um, sending me money for food, which was also why I'd eaten so badly because I was desperate not to spend, you know, too much of their money knowing that everything was double the cost. And I started auditioning and, you know, it was me and 262 other girls for one role in a, in a replacement of the national tour of, you know, mama goes to Egypt or whatever it was. And um, <laughs> as I mean, it was, it was wild. It was everything we'd been told to expect and worse. <laughs> but um, Not an Emmy was, winner. I mean, not a Tony winner, would you say then, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and only the strong survive. So it's it sort of, you know, I had graduated in the February, which was the tail end of the audition seasons coming up for the summer shows. And it was getting towards the end of the, what, of the theater season, like the auditions. Um, and I was running down and I kept getting called back and kept getting called back and it would be between me and four other girls and they'd choose someone else. It would be me and someone else and they'd choose someone else. And my teachers all said, well, just keep, you know, that means you're doing something right. You'll get something. Um, but I was desperate, desperate. And I ended up landing a gig uh, in a summer stock production in um, North Conway in New Hampshire. And it was, it was a brilliant set of gigs for me because it was a, a fabulous mix of lead roles and a couple of chorus roles, I think. So, um, you know, that you needed to get stuff on your resume and be able to, you know, take <laughs> off some of your less, less sort of professional looking credits that you, you'd tried to pad out your resume with. And, <clears throat> and um, so that's exactly what I did. I came home and I was going to play Velma in Chicago in one of the shows. And I knew I was not fit enough despite being fit uh, so I came home and uh, saw my family for a month, I think. And one of my brothers is a personal trainer at the time. And so he trained me just to get fitter uh, so that I went back to the States um, ready to take on that role. Now, for everybody who's listening, um, for those of you who are watching on the YouTube channel, um, they may oh. have noticed. Yeah, we have a YouTube channel. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, now the book is Life at the Bottom of the Blender. And I got to ask you about the title. But but first, I want to let people know that you had to overcome a very big hurdle in your life. Um, you developed from stress, alopecia. I did. I did. We, um, my husband and I are, have three very excellent, very intense children who are currently downstairs being babysat by the TV because it's school holidays here. And um, and I've threatened them with all sorts of things. No, we're going away tomorrow <laughs> to see friends. And I said, if you guys interrupt me, that's it. I'm going to put you in the room for the day. So we'll see how long that holds. Um, but our eldest is autistic. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it it is really... Uh, a tough world to live in when your brain operates differently to the majority. And as a mom, yeah. that is devastating. And uh, we're actually all coming back from a really, she had a really rough time last night and 
uh, it was a wild ride here in Yamina. So, um, and it, yeah, I, I stressed the hair out of my head. So, um, it, it did start initially I sort of lost like a, a racetrack kind of around here. Uh-huh. And then we made a pretty drastic move. Um, my husband's a chef, uh, an American chef that I'd met in, in New York and we sold our restaurant and we moved to a remote tropical Island in Fiji, uh, to uh-huh. give a bit of an easier time of it. I sort of had an instinct that Sydney, whilst nothing on New York, it is still busy and loud and there's lots going on and we had, you know, a very busy life. And I thought maybe if we can just bring things down for her and take away some of the sensory stress, we can see where she sits, you know, where, where, where her natural coping skills are and then we can work out what best she needs. And so we did that. We, we moved to this glorious island about 45 minutes off the mainland of Fiji and my hair started to grow back and my big, the two girls were going to the local village school, which was um, further around the corner in a speedboat to get there, no shoes. They were the only white kids um, the village kids were at, attended the school and then their parents mostly worked at the resort where my husband was working. And I was, you know, just taking, taking stock. I was back writing, I was back running and my hair started to grow back. Um, perfect white in, in this part here and a little bit here. And then COVID hit and initially you know, initially there's a reef that protects the island. And I remember looking at the reef and going, I feel like COVID is that reef, you know, and, and where, or COVID is on the other side of the reef. And, you know, at the time, China and Italy were getting really hammered, but we, we felt really immune to it. And, and even, you know, a couple of my Aussie friends were visiting us at the time and they were like, look, we're going to change our flights and go home early. And I remember sort of thinking, Oh, I, or in fact, I said to him, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. I understand that. You know, we're just going to stick it out. You know, we're, we're fine. We're safe. And then um, within, I think they left. And I think a couple of days later, the girls came home from school and they'd heard about a case that had reached Fiji that was in Latoka, which is about um, 20 minutes um, out of Nandi, the main, the main town where we were off of the mainland. And um, and we had a meeting with the owner of, of the resorts. He's a lovely Fijian man. And we all went up to the staff quarters and, and um, I'll never forget, you know, I was sitting there and I, Gregory was down the front with the staff and I was up the back with the rest of, you know, a lot of the staff workers. And um, my son, Kit, was three at the time and, you know, he's this little blonde thing and he would just get passed around from lap to lap of the Fijians, you know, these hulking strong men that climb trees and get him coconuts and they're, you know, smooching him and then he'd be passed on to Lucy from housekeeping and she has the lovely bosom that he would nuzzle into. <laughs> and, and you know, they, they sang that they were very religious people and they sang at the start of it in these glorious harmonies that they just create. And, um, and, and we would, that were told on the Friday that the resort was going to have to close because, of course, they had lost 
the borders around the world were closing, so they'd lost their tourism market, but they were Fiji was also going to lock down. Mm. And we had until the next week to get out. And I just said to the GM, book us the first direct flight home. And we had to leave on the Tuesday and the last flights out of the country were the Wednesday. Wow. And we landed in Australia and I looked down and Gregory still had his chef's clogs on and Edie had no shoes on at all. And we had no luggage. We had, you know, it was fall in Australia and we had no home, no furniture, no jobs. It was, (laughs) it was pretty wild. So, yeah. So anyway, from there, things sort of took a bit of a downward uh, turn for Quinn because obviously um, the best thing for an autistic is consistency and the pandemic really threw that out the window and and she's had a wild ride and now I'm completely bald. But I do have fake eyebrows. Can you see? Yeah. Got them tattooed on and then um, fake eyeliner to try and um, compensate for no eyelashes. Is that tattooed also, the eyeliner? Yeah, yeah, and that hurt. Like, well, I mean, they, they numb it. They numb it. But for whatever reason, um, the lady said that my skin didn't take the tattoo ink very well. Mm. I don't know why. And um, so it didn't work very well. Um, but I don't really like the feeling of false eyelashes. I mean, yeah. I wore them on the stage, but you, you do still feel like you've got a spider stuck to your head. So <laughs> uh, most of the time, this is me. Um, That's fantastic, though. I mean, it's, you know, and I know it's a struggle. Um, we are, um, but everything's, you know, you're, you're, you're coming through, you're a fighter, you're coming through it. And, Thank you. Yeah. Now, um, now, people don't realize that now we're talking about life at the bottom of the blender, but you also had another book out with your husband uh, a few years ago. Greg, Gregory Llewellyn is her husband, for those of you who don't know, and had a cookbook out called fried mm-hmm. chicken and friends yes now i'm originally from kentucky okay so uh-huh. when you're talking about fried chicken you're talking to an expert here okay yeah so, <laughs> but um it's the you call it the heart yard family cookbook what was that like working with your husband in these recipes uh we actually work really really well together I think partly it's because i don't step into his domain and he doesn't step into mine so you know, because I was an actress, of course, I'd always I'd worked in hospitality as well in New York, and so I had I I ran the front of the restaurant, um, and you know remembered pe- the guests and what they drank and where they sat, and I I really love that side of hospitality. I love you know remembering p- things about people and and you know they've come into us to have a good night out, and I love making that happen. And so I worked I ran the dining room and he ran the kitchen and. When he said he wanted to put fried chicken on the menu, we were living above a family friend in a one-bedroom apartment in sort of the inner city of Sydney. You kind of had a view of the Harbour Bridge from a rickety not-to-code balcony if you sort of went like that. And, um, and I just have this distinct memory of fennel because Gregory was forever dehydrating fennel pollen in this tiny one-room apartment to get the quantities he so he could make fennel powder for one of his little dishes and I was like oh yeah okay fried chicken I said well you know I it's not an Aussie thing like it's not in our memory as a childhood dish you know we don't I, I don't I don't know how it'll go but if this is you're in charge of the menu so you do you know whatever you want and there were all yeah. these other of course things you know paella and 
oyster po' boys and then this sophisticated salmon in a jar dish. So we had a nice variety, but I could not believe it. We opened this restaurant off of the cool strip because we couldn't afford the rent on the main strip in, a, in an, an inner west part of Sydney. And the fried chicken became this weird hit and we got press everywhere and we were booked solid. You couldn't get a weekend booking for six weeks. We thought we'd open. We had done the budgets on the, you know, hoping people would maybe not want takeaway tie and they'd wander in the front door. Mm-hmm. You know, it was our opening budgets were, were very humble, which is, does not mean we turned around and made millions because, as you know, with restaurants, to make money, you've got to have so many more on the floor and so many more in the kitchen. And so, mm-hmm. but it was, it was this wild thing and it wouldn't matter how many fried chicken he prepped. And it was this complicated three-day process. We would always run out and we would be doing a third seating of the dining room. And there was always a count on the fried chicken. And we would seat people and say, now, listen, are you here for the fried chicken? Cause we need to go back and tell the <laughs> kitchen. So yeah. And then um, from that, we got approached to do this cookbook um, called Fried Chicken and Friends. And, I, you know, I, even at the time I was like, oh, okay, all right. I mean, you know, again, seems weird to me, but what do I know? Um, and and I was, you know, wanting to write and that had been put on the back burner during the restaurant. So for me saying yes to a cookbook was, was a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. And so I wrote the vignettes and the stories and, and the through-line type thing. And then one of our staff members who, who worked with us, she also had an apprenticeship working at a food magazine. Um, and so we gave her the um, arduous task of getting recipes out of Gregory's brain. Because, of course, for a lot of chefs, they're like, well, of course you do it with the lid off, you know, or of course <laughs> that would mean this. And Amy kept having to say to him, it's not of course, because it's a cookbook for people who aren't chefs, you know. So um, <laughs> she had that. She had the hardest job of that. I used to give her a bottle of wine and wish her good luck. Let's go back to the new book, uh, Life at the Bottom of the Blender. I've got to ask you um, the title. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was well, there, so when we, yeah. when we had Hearts Yard, I think we were probably a month or so in, and um, Gregory looked at me and he said, sweets. I just never realized that we were going to be therapists as well as restaurant owners, you know, and we hadn't quite factored in how much our staff were going to become a part of us and that that meant we were invested in them and their lives and what was going on for them, which then, of course, trickles over into somewhat of a parenting role, I guess, in Mm -hmm. in the loosest of terms. And... um, that was a big shock. And then, uh, you know, we were, oh, well, we had Quinn who was a year and a half old and um, she doesn't sleep. She does now with the help of melatonin, but, um, but she didn't back then. We didn't have a diagnosis back then. And so she didn't sleep. And so we had, I had her and we, Gregory, you know, we had, we were so busy that Gregory and the pastry chef used to have to roster when they could use the oven. And we were then moved to living above the restaurant, which was worse than anything I'd lived in in New York, by the way. <laughs> and um, and he would have to set the alarm to go down and change the meat out of the, out of the oven to put the next lot of things in so that we would be ready for service. And 
we, our asses were on fire. We had no money because we were trying to pay back the restaurant fit out costs as fast as we could because we had borrowed from family and friends. And I just remember him looking at me one day and said, sweets, this is live at the bottom of the blender. And um, there you have it. So that is where the title of the book came. Well, Naomi Hart, it's been great. It's been fun. It's been great having you here today. <laughs> Life at the Bottom of the Blender is the book. It's coming out on August 1st, published um, published by Bad Apple Press. Is that correct? <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bad Apple Press. And like I said, August 1st, Naomi Hart. And the other book is Fried Chicken and Friends. If you want to find out how to cook fried chicken, <laughs> you know to to cook it rightly okay we'll say it that way you know so yeah but anyway naomi again thank you for being on like the camera author again oh thank you so much for inviting me i've had a delightful chat life at the bottom of the blender is written by naomi hart and published by bad apple press until next time i'm jim juno and this has been light camera author <laughs>